You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our great God, you are the high King of heaven, and you have condescended and took upon yourself flesh to live here and dwell among us, that we might see your glory. We pray now that you would open our eyes to your word, that we might behold the Lord Jesus Christ in all of his fullness and all of his glory and grace. May this time be blessed, O Spirit of God, with your presence and your teaching ministry to us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I had intended, by the way, turn to John chapter 5, in case you didn't see that coming. I had intended uh, last week and then forgot to include a little visual aid for you, which is on the back of your bulletin, and you may have already noticed it there. If you didn't get a bulletin, don't bother going to get one because we'll be done with this before you ever get back to your seat. But you'll notice there's a little map at the top and a picture below that on the back of your bulletin there. The map kind of gives you some idea of, um, if you have a, a magnifying glass, it would give you some idea of where the sheep gate is and where the pool is that we talked about last week from John chapter 5. It's north of the temple complex. They're kind of to the east side next to the red line. That would be to the right next to the red line. You see the two little tiny blue spots there, two little tiny blue squares. That's the pool of Bethesda in John chapter 5. Near the Sheep Gate, that's where the miracle took place. Archaeologists have kind of pinned that down as the location of that pool. And then down below, you see the little thumbnail picture that would be, <laughs> some of you are like that. The, the little tiny thumbnail picture there below, there was two pools, and we read in John 5 that it was a pool surrounded by five porticos. They're kind of covered areas there, one on each side, that's four, and then one across the middle. And under those porticos, under those roof and the colonnades there surrounding the pool lay a multitude of the blind and the sick and the lame, afflicted by various illnesses, we read in John chapter 5. And so those little covered areas there would have given them shade from the heat of the sun or or cover from any wind or cover from rain that might come. That's kind of what most archaeologists believe that the Pool of Bethesda looked like. So you can imagine this pool, and I don't know what the dimensions of it are. I couldn't find that. I didn't see that anywhere. You can imagine this pool and all of the sick lying around that pool waiting for, we found out last week, the stirring of the water. Because there was something that caused the stirring of the water. And I believe it was a superstition or a myth that the water was stirred by an angel. And in the stirring of that water, they believed that the first person to make it into the pool was healed of whatever affliction with which they were afflicted. Now, it's somewhat difficult in our environment, in our culture, and in our day and age to understand the total trauma of being paralyzed like the man in John 5. In our culture, because of technology or government programs and church programs and sort of the day in which we live, our style of life or our manner of life, our standard of living, I guess, is what it would be, we have a hard time understanding just how devastated somebody with a paralysis would have been in that culture. Because all of those things, the technology and the programs and all of that, sort of form a safety net in our culture that people who are crippled like this don't live today like they had to live 2,000 years ago. And I think that that's as it should be. I think it's good that it's not like that anymore. I think that God has a heart for cripples and, and people who are paralyzed and the ill and the sick and the lame and the blind. I think there's a place in the heart of God where that grieves him, that vexes him. 
And so it's good that we try and alleviate whatever suffering we can, but sometimes we have to sit back and sort of reflect upon the situation and realize life today for a crippled person, even the most severely crippled person, is far different, far different than it was 2,000 years ago. I suggested, and I actually said this out loud last week, that this man, it seems, had nobody there, nobody in his life to roll him into the pool, to stand by him, maybe not a wife or kids or a friend, even a friend in the world who would spend a day with him by the pool waiting for the stirring of the water to be the one to sort of kick him in and get him cured of his ailment or his illness. And somebody came up with an observation last week, which I think was very astute, and I didn't even think of this. This is quite brilliant, actually, which surprised me that I didn't think of it, but probably everybody else in this room, probably everybody else in this room caught on to this already, but it never even crossed my mind. Somebody last week mentioned that maybe the reason this man had nobody at the pool to help him into the pool was because everybody in his life, his wife and his children and even his friends and people that he knew, none of them bought into this myth about the stirring of the water and the healing of it. Maybe everybody in this man's life looked at the pool and said, you know what, it's a, it's a myth, it's a legend, it's a sham, it's not real, it doesn't happen. This is just a superstition. You're putting your hope in the wrong place. I want you to imagine if you had a friend who was Ill, Ill or paralyzed and came to you and said, look, Benny Hinn is coming to Spokane. And I would like you to go with me to the Benny Hinn crusade because I want you to be the one to wheel me down to the front when the healings start. Now you, if you have a biblical understanding of suffering and healing and signs and wonders and you know what Benny Hinn is all about and you understand the theology and what it is that makes him a heretic, you might say in all kindness, look, I love you, I, I feel for you, I wish that you would get better, I'm all interested in wanting the very best for you, but this is not it. He is not it. You're putting your faith in a sham, in a false teacher. It's in the wrong thing. So you can go to the Benny Hinn crusade if you want, but you're going to go there alone. I'm not going. I will not darken the door of that circus. You might say something like that, maybe a bit kinder. I would say I'm not going to darken the door of that circus, but you might sort of soften it a little bit, but you wouldn't go. Is it possible that this man's friends and family, his wife and his children, had the same sort of perspective? You want to go to the pool? You go alone. I'm not going down in there. You're placing your faith in the wrong thing. You're putting your trust in the wrong thing. It's a sham. It's a joke. It doesn't actually happen. As desperate as you are, I can understand that. But I'm not going with you. Well, that was his condition. Maybe he was alone, maybe he wasn't. Maybe it's not evidence that he had nobody in his life who loved him enough to wait with him. Maybe it was just evidence of a misplaced faith and a superstitious mindset, which I think is what we could say about it. So we looked at his condition last week. Now we look in verses 6 through 9 at the cure, the cure that the man received and the consequences of that cure. Let's read again, beginning in verse 6. Verse 5 says, The man was there who had been ill for 38 years. Verse 6, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, do you wish to get well? I want you to notice that Jesus is the one who takes the initiative in verse 6. Jesus saw, Jesus knew, and Jesus said. And a key element of this miracle is the fact that this man was not seeking a miracle from Jesus. He didn't come to Jesus. Jesus came to him. Jesus came to where this sick man was at, into the pool, and approached the man. The man couldn't even approach Jesus. It is the Lord who takes the initiative in this miracle. All of the initiative taking rests with Jesus. He is the one who saw the man, sought the man out, singled him out of the crowd. He is the one who knew, Jesus is, that the man had been lying there for all of that period of time. 
And Jesus is the one who said to him, do you wish to get well? Now, at first reading, that sounds like a very odd question to ask, does it not? Do you want to get well? What kind of question is that to ask to a, to a guy who has been lame for almost four decades? Do you wish to get well? Is that not a self-evident answer? Of course I want to get well. Why else do you think I would be at the pool? Why else would I be lying here putting, wanting to be the first one to get rolled into the pool? Of course I want to be well. I've been crippled for 38 years. Do you not think that I want to be well? Does that sound like a goofy question to you? At first reading, it does. Until you realize that this is a very heart-searching question. Do you really want the cure for your ailment? Do you really wish to be made well? I love the way the King James puts it. Wilt thou be made whole? I love the King James just for that reason, right? Wilt thou... No, what did I say? Wilt thou be made... That's it. Wilt thou be made whole? Do you really want to be made whole, complete, and do you really want to be healed? Now, that would make the man suddenly begin to think about his illness and his affliction. It would focus the man's attention on Jesus and make the man really search his heart and ask himself, do I really want to be alleviated from my burden? Do I really want to have my condition lessened and to be made well? Now, why wouldn't he want to be made well? Is it possible that somebody who had been lame and been on the public dole for 38 years, though as much as he might say he hates his malady and act like he hates his malady and say that he wishes to be well, is it possible that deep down, really in the recesses of his heart, that he really did not want the cure? One commentator said many an eastern beggar would lose a good living by being cured of his disease. So you get cured of your disease and you might be able to make a better living being well, but you're making a living and you're not having to work for it. Do you realize that there are some people who actually enjoy their misery? Have you ever met them? I've met them. They enjoy the misery. They enjoy the sympathy. They enjoy the empathy. They enjoy the constant attention that comes to them. They enjoy receiving things. They enjoy being the person who is able to say, woe is me. I'm so afflicted. Oh, I hate this condition. Oh, look at me. And they really, I think, if offered to get out of their circumstances, would not get out of their circumstances. Some people bask in their misery. Now, I don't understand it. You might not understand it. But that is the reality of the human heart and the reality of human wickedness is that sometimes we actually enjoy our malady. Because it brings us, we get something out of it. It's a sin-sick condition, but it's true. So here's the searching question to the man. Do you really want to be made well? As much as you hate your condition, as much as you hate your circumstances, do you really wish that they would change? Is that truly the desire of your heart? You're given the opportunity to escape from your malady, to have the burden lifted, but is that really what you want? Or do you like your burden? Do you realize that every ruined marriage, every wrecked life, every divorce, every tragedy of human relationship and everything that happens to us and, the, and all of the consequences and fruit of our sin, do you realize that all of that is the result of sinful choices, sinful responses, and sin? And sometimes people can be in the tragedy of that situation for so long that they actually lose the desire to be out from under it because they enjoy the misery of that situation, that condition. All of it is the result of you and I making decisions 
that pursue our own ruin and run from the very thing that would be for our good. And people do that. You can come across somebody who is reaping all of the whirlwind of the sins that they've sown. They're reaping all of the disaster of everything that they brought upon themselves. And they say that they would hate their circumstances. They hate the misery. They hate the consequences of their sin. But listen, they would rather have their sin and all of its attendant misery than to not have their sin and not have the misery. They would rather be miserable with the sin than to give up the sin and to pursue righteousness and get rid of all of the misery. I don't understand that. You don't understand that. But that's the case. That's the truth. Some people would rather have that. And you meet somebody and you say, well, you have all of the attendant wickedness and sin and destruction that your sin has brought upon you. You know what? Here's the answer. You repent and you turn from your sin and you embrace the Savior and you begin to pursue righteousness, pursue holiness, live for somebody other than yourself, be other-centered, and live to the glory of God. And people will look at that and they say, that is worse than my malady. And it's crazy. What do you mean it's worse than your malady? How could it be worse than your malady? They actually love their sin with all of its attendant misery more than abandoning the sin and seeking after righteousness. So here's the question to the man. Do you really want to be made well? By the way, do you realize, friends, that that is the very same question that is asked every time the gospel is proclaimed to an unbeliever? Do you really want to be made well? Do you have deep down in the recesses of your heart a desire for truth and righteousness and holiness and heaven and salvation? And you know what you will find? Apart from the work of the Spirit of God and the work of grace in somebody's heart, they will say 100% of the time, I have no desire for any of those things. There must be something that happens in the heart of man that gives us a desire for holiness because men love darkness rather than light. And they don't want to give up their malady. They don't want to give up their condition or their misery because some people actually enjoy that, even though they might say that they don't. So the question to the man, do you really want to be made well? Now look at verse 7. Verse 7 is his answer. And it basically is yes. The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water stirred up. But while I'm coming, another steps down before me. Do you want to be made well? The short answer is yes. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm next to the pool. That's why I've come here. That's why I'm lying on my mat. I'm waiting here for somebody to roll me into the pool, to help me into the pool when the water is stirred. His trust and his faith was in the pool. And he says he wanted to be made well. And when asked, do you really want to be made well? He had to answer, yes, I do. That's why I'm here. That's why I'm at the pool. Now look at the cure. Verse 8. The cure comes in the words that Jesus spoke. Jesus said to him, get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Three imperative commands. Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Now what I want you to notice is that the man who was by the pool could not obey any of those commands if he was not first healed by the Lord Jesus. Do you realize that? He could not obey any of those commands. He was given three commands. Get up, pick up, and walk. Is he, apart from a cure, able to do any either of the, any of those three? He cannot get up, he cannot pick up his pallet, and he could not walk. He couldn't do any of those things. The man in himself was entirely unable to fulfill the command that Jesus gave him unless Jesus first gave him the ability to fulfill the command and heal him. And so with the command comes the enabling and the healing to obey the command that is given because the man in himself had no ability to obey that. So here we have in this man at this pool wedded two of these incredible concepts. First, divine, gracious enabling by God to fulfill the command that he has given. 
And second, the human response to that divine enabling. Those two things come together in this man. So that the obedience is the man's, but the power to obey belongs to God. Those two things are wedded and work their way out in every area of your life and salvation. Every area. In your salvation, in your sanctification, and in your ultimate security. The gospel command to repent of sin and to trust Christ for salvation is a command that the natural man in himself, apart from divine grace, apart from the Spirit of God, apart from divine enabling, has no ability to fulfill. Because man is dead in his trespasses and sins. His mind is hostile to God. He hates God. He loves darkness. He hates light. He is dead and wants nothing at all to do with the one true and living God absolutely unable to let go of his sin and deliver himself from the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of darkness and to set himself free from his own flesh. Unable to do that. Unable to let go of his sin, turn to the Savior, and believe on Jesus Christ. And yet the command of the gospel is repent and believe. And the natural man has to say, I am unable to be perfect. I am unable to repent. I am unable to let go of my sin. I am unable to believe in and of myself. But along comes the grace of God that says, and that it come, along comes the grace of God that enables the sinner to do the very thing that he has been commanded to do. So the sinner, when he repents and he believes, he has to look back and say, it wasn't me in my flesh, in my hostility to God that gave me the ability to do that. It was the divine enabling of the grace of God that allowed me to, and enabled me to fulfill the very command that he gave me, which resulted in my salvation. So who's responsible for my salvation, me or God? Well, the obedience of repenting and, and believing belongs to me, but the divine enabling belonged to God, who gave me the enablement to do the very thing that he commanded me to do. And it works out that way in sanctification. Who is it that makes you holy? It's not you. Who is it that makes you holy? I work out my own salvation with fear and with trembling, and yet it is God who works in me both to will and to do for his good pleasure. So I, in working out my own salvation, I am trusting in the Lord and I am doing my obedience, but He is the one who is enabling me not only to do it, but also to even will to do it. What is it that eventually secures me for eternity for in my salvation? If my salvation is a marriage of divine enablement and human response, and my sanctification, growing in holiness, is divine enablement and human response, guess what my perseverance in the faith is? It is divine enablement and human response. Do I persevere in my faith? Yes, and in persevering in my faith, I will persevere to the end. But guess what? My persevering is His enabling. It's His securing. He is the one that secures me in my salvation through my perseverance. But my perseverance, though it is mine, my perseverance, it is He that enables me to do it and does it through me. So who is it that keeps me? My perseverance keeps me, but my perseverance is His keeping, and His keeping guarantees my perseverance. Every area of your life, these two things are married together. And we see it here in the man at the pool. Get up, take up your pallet, and walk. Without the cure, is he able to do any of those? Without the power and enablement, is he able to do any of those? He's able to do none of them. But he did them. And the obedience belonged to the man, and the power belonged to God. And in our salvation, in our sanctification, in our security, the obedience rests with us. And the power to do so rests with God. It's a beautiful, beautiful truth. And it is the outworking of salvation and sanctification and ultimately our security in Christ. So the cure came with the command, get up, take up your pallet, 
and walk. And now look at the results of it or the consequences of the cure. Verse 9, immediately. Immediately. This was an instantaneous healing. Legs that had never walked for 38 years and had never obeyed the commands of the brain suddenly are made completely able. By the way, fully functioning. This man didn't stand up and stagger around like a newborn calf trying to get his balance. Immediately he was able with a fully functioning, fully formed muscles, fully healed, fully capable of walking just like you and I take for granted every single day. Can you imagine what that is like after 38 years? Hard for you to imagine that, I think. Last spring when Justin Peters was here to preach for us for a few times, I had the opportunity of spending a lot of time with him. Justin Peters has cerebral palsy. And if you were here for those meetings, then you saw how difficult it was even for him to walk on flat ground, let alone walking upstairs. And if you attended any of the meetings and watched him try and make it up even to three stairs up onto the stage to do the the meetings, you saw how difficult it was for him. And there was no way that Justin could ever get up my front stairs, which is six or seven steps into my home. So I would take him in through the garage And I would watch him. I would stand behind him in case he fell back. And he walks with crutches. I would stand behind him, and he would, with much effort and difficulty, step up just three steps out of my garage into my kitchen. Just three steps. And one of them was a real short one. But it would take him a bit to do this, and he would work his way up the steps and get into the kitchen and shut the door. And I noticed after one time that Justin was, he just looked exhausted. I mean, he was panting after those three steps. And so I asked him, Justin, is it because, is the difficulty and the, the exhaustion due to the fact that your legs have atrophied, and so the muscles are just not able to lift the weight of the leg itself. And he said to me, that's part of it. But the other part of it, and the most exhausting part of it, is that I look down at my feet, and I will them to do something that they don't do. And with his mind, he is trying to make his muscles do something that they do not want to do. And that is the strain of it. That's the difficulty of it. That's the exhaustion of it is he has no ability. He has no ability to make his legs do what his mind wants them to do. And that just taxes him, even in walking on flat ground. Can you imagine what it was like for this man to be lying there, never walked for 38 years? And how many times had he looked down at his legs and tried to get his legs or his lower body to do what they would not do? And his legs would not obey his mind. Now suddenly, this man, whom he does not know, says, get up, take up your pallet, and walk. And suddenly that leg moves. And he realizes, I can move that leg, and I can move the other leg too. Both my legs are doing exactly what I want them to do. I look down, and I can will, I can lift this up, and I can lift that up. And immediately he got up. And the first act of this healed man was to get up, pick up his pallet, and walk. That is just amazing. Now I want you to contrast this scene in John 5 with what typically passes as a healing in mo- with modern day faith healers. Jesus went to where this man was at. Modern day faith healers require that sick people come to where they are at. You will never see Benny Hinn, Kenneth Copeland, Morris Sorello, Fred Price, Joyce Meyer. You will never see Todd Bentley ever darken the door of a cancer ward at a hospital. They will never go to where sick people are at. They will never go to a nursing home. Why? Because the mask has to come off immediately in walking into one of those places. They want the sick people to come to them. Jesus went to where the sick people were at. Further, Jesus did this without any of the stage show and the antics and the throwing the hands around and the lights and all of that. No notice whatsoever. He just healed one guy 
And then he says later on, he slipped out of that place before the man could even get his name or realize who he was. He did it without any of those antics. And Jesus didn't take up an offering before the healing. He didn't ask anything of the man, didn't expect anything of the man. In fact, one of the most pernicious lies of the modern faith healing movement and modern faith healers is that if you do not receive a healing, if you do not receive your blessing, if you are not prosperous, it is because your faith, something is wrong with your faith, or you have negatively confessed something, that is, you've spoken negative terms, or there's sin in your life. So if you come forward and you don't receive your healing, it's because your faith isn't strong enough, you've confessed something negative, or there's sin in your life. Now look at the man in John chapter 5. This man's illness was a result of his sin. We find out later on in verse 14. So he had sin in his life. Second, the man was full of negative confession. Full of it. I don't have anybody to push me into the pool. And when I try, it doesn't happen. And my faith is in the pool. And I have nobody to help me into this. The man is full of thoughts about his own inability and his own circumstance and his own tragedy. That is negative confession all over the place. And third, the man had absolutely no faith in Jesus Christ as a healer whatsoever. None. None. In fact, one of the most remarkable things about this whole miracle is the fact that there is no mention of belief or faith anywhere in the passage. Do you notice that? And it's right on the heels of chapter 4, where the nobleman's son, the most remarkable thing about him was his faith. He came to Jesus, believing Jesus was able. When Jesus said it's done, he believed the word of Jesus. And then when he left and he was met on the path by people from his home reporting about his son, he believed and his whole household believed. Chapter 4 is all filled with faith. And yet in stark contrast to chapter 4 is chapter 5. There's no mention of faith, no mention of belief. In fact, at the moment that the man receives his healing, where is his faith? It is in the tank, so to speak, in the pool, in the water. He's still hoping that somebody would push him into the pool. I think that in this man's mind, the most he is expecting from Jesus is that Jesus would be so moved by compassion that he would stick around a little bit and at least wait with him by the pool for the water to be stirred and then roll him into the pool when the time has come. That is the most that he is expecting from Jesus. He didn't ask for this miracle. He's not believing for this miracle. He is not expecting this miracle. There's no faith. There's no belief here at all. John 5 is enough. This passage is singularly enough to send every faith healer packing. And one last contrast. This was an immediate, complete, total, verifiable miracle. An instant, complete healing. And no faith healer has ever done that or can do this. None of them can. doesn't mean that I don't believe God heals. I believe God heals. I just don't believe that faith healers heal. God heals, and he doesn't do it through faith healers. And this whole passage, this whole miracle, we've reached the end of it now, this whole miracle is a deliberate, intentional provocation. I guess that's the word I'm looking for. I hope that's a word. Provocation of the Pharisees. This whole thing is designed deliberately to elicit the ire and the anger and the indignation of the Jews and the Pharisees. Now, why would I say that? Let me ask you a question. Did Jesus have to heal this man this way? Did he have to heal the man this Did he have to go into the pool? Did he have to see this man? And did he have to speak to this man? No, he didn't. How do we know that? Chapter 4. He healed somebody 16 miles away, having never seen him, having never had a conversation with him, and having never gone there. So there are a hundred ways that Jesus could have healed this man without ever drawing attention to himself. 
You realize that? He could have seen the man in the pool and just singled him out and felt compassion on him. And then he could have backed away into a corner, sort of in the shadows, and just by an act of his will and an act of his word, healed the man completely. And then stood there with joy on his face as he watched the man get up, pick up his pallet, and leave the pool. He could have done that. He didn't even actually have to go into the pool. Jesus could have just been walking by on the road outside of the pool. And by a very act of his will, he could have healed the entire multitude inside that pool without ever going inside. And with all of the people in Jerusalem coming in and out of the temple and all of the crowds, nobody would have known the difference. He could have just done it completely incognito, completely without anybody's attention. But he didn't do that. He didn't have to go into the pool. He didn't have to talk to this man. He didn't have to see this man. He didn't have to have a conversation with him at all. So why did Jesus heal this man this way? You know why? It was deliberate to elicit the anger of the Pharisees. Because this whole miracle, everything about where it is done, everything about how it is done, is all done to set the table for the claims which are to follow. And this should be an occasion of joy and rejoicing and gladness and happiness and There should be a party going on in this pool. All of Jerusalem should be overflowing with joy at the fact that this man was healed. And yet at the end of verse 9, we read, Now that day it was the Sabbath. Oops. Uh Uh-oh. Have you ever been standing out on a sunny day, a bright sunny day, and all of a sudden you feel the sort of the darkness come in overhead? Everything starts to get a little darker. And then you kind of get this feeling that, okay, my nice sunny bright day is about to turn very horrible. And you turn around and look and you see that the storm clouds have totally covered the sun. John is a masterful author. He could have told us this at the beginning of the miracle, but he doesn't. He waits to the very end because this is the punchline of the whole miracle. It was the Sabbath that, that day. And we read through this as if for the first time. And we sense the joy and the excitement and the compassion and the glory of this. And we think, wow, this is good. All of this is good. And it's a bright, sunny scene. Then you get to the end of it and suddenly you feel the storm clouds start to come in, right? It was the Sabbath that day. And suddenly you and I kind of get the sense it's about to get nasty. And nasty it does. Why? Because it was the Sabbath that day. We'll unpack that phrase next week. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that our Lord is so compassionate that Jesus is. We thank you that you, by your sovereignty and your grace, are able to do anything that you desire to do. Thank you, Father, for being such a compassionate and gracious God and demonstrating that to us in all of the miracles that our Lord did. And we know that in many ways we were just like this man, not crippled, but dead in our trespasses and sins. And you, by your grace, have commanded us to do things which we and ourselves are not able to do. But we thank you that you give us the strength to do those things. Make us, O God, we pray, obedient, loving, kind, and humble and submissive to not only your will and your command, but also the grace that you give that enables us to fulfill your perfect will. Thank you that you not only work in us to will, but also to do your good pleasure. Keep us obedient and faithful in that task, we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.